1: Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org.
2: On today's California Report magazine, we follow a mother on a 2,000-mile journey to visit her son. I get to actually lay eyes on him. I want to lay eyes on my child. He wound up so far away because of a state policy that was supposed to be temporary. Plus, we head
3: to the gold rush town of Rough and Ready. We happen to live on to Helen Back Lane, and I think that kind of makes people shocked. They laugh. It's usually a good laugh. We've got your weekly road trip for the ears
2: to meet the people and visit the places that make California unique. I'm Sasha Coca and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. As we know, last month's fires in Northern California destroyed thousands of homes and businesses. But we also lost some key cultural landmarks. One of those places was an inspiration to artists, scientists, and sound recordists around the world. Yet it was mostly unknown to its neighbors in Sonoma County's Valley of the Moon. It was the home and studio of Kat and Bernie Krause. KQED science editor Craig Miller had visited many times before, both as a journalist and friend, a fellow audiophile who loves to record nature sounds. After the fire, he returned to help sort through the rubble and record this story.
4: It was about a week after the Nuns' Fire swept across their ridge in Glen Ellen that Cat and Bernie Krause got their first extended look at the ruins of their property the place they had always called Wild Sanctuary. Oh, man. Jesus Christ, Craig. Imagine what it took to do this. Yeah. Unbelievable. Isn't it? Only the foot-thick earthen walls of their unique home remain. It's hard to imagine that just a year ago, almost exactly, I was here interviewing Bernie about his remarkable 50-year career in music, film, and his greatest passion, nature sound. This is a moment from Yuba Pass on the Sierra, which can't be duplicated, as the place was logged shortly afterward. Bernie is a founding father in the emerging science of soundscape ecology. He was among the first to point to the important role that nature sound plays in healthy ecosystems. Now the soundscape at Wild Sanctuary itself was reduced to the crunch of our own footsteps. No bird song, no insects only some wind and the blackened oaks, and an occasional faint clank of falling debris. In the office and studio, Bernie and I stood over a molten reddish-brown mound that had been his archive of reel-to-reel audio tapes. This is all audio tape. It's fragmented and burnt, and, and, uh, and there are reels and reels of this stuff. I had over 500 reels of tape here. And it's all gone, Craig. Fortunately, his irreplaceable nature sound archive, thousands of hours, was digitized and backed up off-site. But the loss of all the original media, his recording equipment... It's just uh, all ashes. So I guess that's the way we all end up at one point or another. (laughs) And, uh, well, that's the way it goes. Next, we will survive this too. Kat Kraus agrees with her husband that Wild Sanctuary will survive. Their home and studio has been an incubator and collaborative space that has yielded a wide range of works from scientific papers to this symphony. But it was always less a place than an idea.
3: I think because there were so many lovely ideas floating around here that had to do with connecting people to the natural world, it became sort of a magical place.
4: I first encountered that magic nearly 20 years ago, documenting Bernie's work recording soundscapes in Sequoia Kings Canyon for the National Park Service. That's also where I met Jack Hines. He's a musician and nature sound recordist, who sometimes creates music and nature fusion, as in this strings-meet-songbird passage. He drew his inspiration from Wild Sanctuary.
0: It's not just the work that they do or that we do. It's, um, it's this bigger piece, which is truly the sanctuary of the wild. And by bringing the voice of that forward and into all of our ears and our consciousness, it helps to preserve a certain resource for us as people that is extremely valuable.
4: As the fires advanced, it was Jack Hines who called and warned and Bernie to get out, which they barely did.
0: <laughs> you would think with the level of emotion that I feel right now that It's as though I lost those two people, but uh, thank God you didn't.
4: Jack and Bernie would sometimes record together up on Sugarloaf Ridge, a state park off Highway 12 east of Santa Rosa. Bernie chose a wooded spot near a stream up there to document changes in the soundscape over the course of California's five-year drought. In those recordings you can hear the life draining out of the place as the landscape becomes desiccated. There may be one more recording in the series as most of Sugarloaf burned in the fires. But Cat hopes that like that piece of scorched earth, the spirit that inhabited Wild Sanctuary will be reborn.
3: It really resonated with people, mm. and they found a lot, of, a lot of community here. So that part of Wild Sanctuary, we hope, will be uh, re-envisioned, and maybe repurposed for, for a, a new generation to take this, all this work forward.
4: Kat and Bernie have taken temporary refuge in Salt Lake City where Kat has family. Where and how they will recreate their wild sanctuary, they still don't know. They're just confident that they will. For the California Report, I'm Craig Miller. <music> ¶¶
2: And now the story of a reunion between a mother and her son. He's in prison. First, let me give you a little setup. Let's rewind a bit in California history to more than a decade ago. Back then, the state's prison system was bursting at the seams. Inmates were sleeping in triple bunks. Gyms were converted into dorms. Then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger declared a state of emergency. That meant California prison officials could do whatever it took to ease the overcrowding, including shipping thousands of inmates to other states. It was supposed to be a temporary solution. But years later, many California prisoners are still locked up out of state. KCRW's George Lavender follows that mom on her journey to see her son, who's now 2,000
5: miles away.
3: Once again, passengers in groups three, four, and five.
5: Delitha Hayden hasn't had much sleep. She had to be up at 1 a.m. to catch the shuttle from her home in Whittier to LAX.
6: Oh, gosh, what time is it? It's um, quarter of five.
5: (laughs) She's on her way to visit her youngest son, William Mitchell. He's 27. Nine years ago, he was convicted of robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. He's eligible for parole in five years. He's been in several California prisons since.
6: He's been incarcerated from age 18. And um, no matter where he was, I still saw him oftentimes twice a month, but definitely every single month.
5: But that got a lot harder a year ago, when Deletha found out he was being moved out of California, first to a prison in Arizona, and then again, this time to a privately run facility in Mississippi.
6: I haven't seen him for a year, an entire year this month.
5: DeLitha's son is one of more than 4,000 California prisoners still serving time in out-of-state prisons. At one point, California was planning to bring all prisoners back in-state by 2016, but that deadline has come and gone.
4: And here we get Miss Hayden. Thank you.
5: Now, she's on her way to Mississippi. To get there, she first has to fly to Houston. The pilot, and um, he says, sit back and relax. I'm going to (laughs) try. From there, she takes another flight.
4: Once again, this is United Airlines flight, 1250
3: with service to Memphis.
5: Then, after a day in Memphis...
6: Here
3: we go.
5: ...she's on the road again for the final stretch of the journey.
6: Welcome to Mississippi.
5: When she pulls off the main highway, she passes three white crosses beside the road and says, as a black woman, she feels she has to be careful here. It's early afternoon by the time she reaches Clarksdale in the Delta.
6: Home sweet home for the next three days.
5: It's taken her two days of travel and about $1,500 to get here. She pulls a yellow pad of paper from her suitcase that she's been using to keep track of expenses.
6: Flight was $349. The first two nights of Airbnb in Memphis came to $95. The car rental, $228. The hotel here in Clarksdale, $348 $348 the two nights in Memphis. She says
5: she would have struggled to afford all that by herself, but friends and family have chipped in to help her get here. Delita is a single mom. She's a registered nurse and works a lot of fill-in jobs. And she supports William's older brother, who's also in prison. It's William. An inmate at
3: Tallahatchie County Correctional Facility.
6: Hey, babe. Boy, I tell you, we got the connection. I literally just got in my room here in Clarksdale.
5: William Mitchell is calling because he heard from some of the other prisoners Perfect that timing. the visiting room they'll be in we we can get like pretty that. cold. told me in that visiting room it'd be cold, so make sure you wear some long sleeve or something
6: like that, you feel me, because you're going to be in there for a while. OK, yeah, I did bring a um, a little jacket. Letha
5: and, and her son um, talk on the phone like this all the time. So I'm she good. says sometimes they talk about what he'll do when he gets out of prison, where he'll live. Other times they talk about less serious things, like what TV shows they've both been watching. But there's some things Dalitha says she just can't get from a phone call, only from seeing him in person.
6: Because I get to actually lay eyes on him. I want to lay eyes on my child and see.
5: Prison officials say the number of Californians in out-of-state prisons has come down from a high of more than 10,000 six years ago. Though they say they haven't been able to bring the remaining prisoners back because state prisons here are still too overcrowded.
6: The next
5: morning, Delitha sets out early. All she's taking with her are her ID and a big plastic bag full of quarters to use in the vending machines in the prison.
6: Wow, there it is.
5: It's a I'm set of big, big white building buildings right right. surrounded by razor wire. The prison is owned and operated by Core Civic, one of the largest private corrections companies in the country.
6: I'm here to visit.
5: I wasn't allowed inside the visiting room and couldn't record their conversation. But I went on a tour and, through an open door, was able to catch a glimpse of the two of them sitting close together. William was dressed in a light blue prison uniform. I noticed he had his mum's eyes. This is how the two of them remember their visit afterwards moms was out there, she was, she was looking nice, you know, she, she just, uh, they, they, usually she wears jewelry and different stuff like that, but I guess out here they don't allow
6: anything. I, you know, stood up and we hugged each other and gave each other a good kiss on each cheek and, <laughs> and just held each other for a bit. We was looking at each other like, man. You know, you still look good, you know
5: what I'm saying? You're taking
6: care of yourself. I scan him up and down. I'm like, you're looking a little pale, you know? I haven't been getting a
5: lot of sun, you feel me? So she was surprised, you know what I'm saying? I didn't have a lot of colors in my phone. because
6: I don't go out because it's, you know, it's hot and muggy. He doesn't like the hot, muggy weather.
5: Since I've gotten out here, definitely, like, uh, 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 my exercise regimen,
3: things like that, has kind of become a little more lax.
6: There's never a time that we don't have something to say.
3: It's, you know, Whether it concerned our family or, or spirituality.
6: I gave him a good hand and arm forearm massage. He was like, Mom, rub my hands, rub my arms.
5: The hardest thing is watching her leave. I was like, man, please take me with
6: you.
5: <laughs> After three full days of visits, chatting and snacking on vending machine food, Deletha gets ready to head back to California.
6: I'm tired. <laughs> I'm Missing my baby already. I mean, you know, at first he wasn't, he didn't turn around. He was facing the other way. And I'm like, he's not turning around to even wave goodbye to me. And then I thought maybe he was too sad or something. And then finally uh, he turned around and blew me a kiss. And that was the hardest moment.
5: A few weeks ago, Governor Brown vetoed a bill that would have stopped California from using private out-of-state prisons by 2021. Deletha Hayden says she hopes her son will be brought back to California soon so that he can be closer to home. But she says she won't wait another year to see him. She's planning a trip back to Mississippi next month. For The California Report, I'm George Lavender.
2: Okay, we've got another story now about a mother and son reunion that takes place in the South. And it's also brought to us by a reporter who's a British transplant. Bear with me, though. It is a California story. That's the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. For more than 40 years, the group has used its music to help create community and inspire activism. They recently went on a tour of five southern states. The idea was to support local LGBTQ communities in the South. KQED arts reporter Chloe Veltman caught up with them on the tour bus. She tells us about one of the singers
7: and his mom, who hadn't heard him perform since he was living as a little girl. On the journey from Birmingham, Alabama to Knoxville, Tennessee, singer Tom Kennard isn't paying much attention to a video screening of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas like the rest of his fellow choir members on the bus. He's worried about whether his mom will like the scarf he's crocheted for her.
3: She picked a green to go with her pea coat.
7: I mean, I didn't
3: wrap them up nicely, but...
7: Tom's 67, and it's been many years since his mom Joyce last heard him sing. She's travelling five and a half hours from Indianapolis to see Tom perform with the chorus in Knoxville. When I chat with him in his hotel ahead of the show... Tom recalls with horror, his mom dressing him up like a doll when he was a child.
3: She always had me in these frilly dresses and frilly socks.
7: Joyce is something of a traditionalist I discover when I first meet her at her hotel shortly after she arrives in Knoxville, a churchgoer who met her husband in high school. We were together 67 years, raised five children. Tom was the oldest. So it was tough on Joyce when Tom came out as a lesbian in his 20s. And even tougher when, at age 47, he decided to take hormones and eventually undergo gender reassignment surgery. And honestly, I was very shocked. I had a hard time accepting it. She's since come around. I realised after a while that I loved my child and that I didn't want to lose my child. Bringing people together is one of the reasons the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus is on this tour. The country's biggest and oldest gay choir changed its international travel plans soon after the 2016 presidential election to instead visit five southern states. The singers are doing concerts and outreach events in places where LGBTQ rights are in conflict with conservative Christian views. Right before the concert begins, Joyce takes her seat front and centre in the Knoxville Civic Auditorium. She's excited and a little bit nervous. She's brought her daughter Amy along for support.
8: Are you ready, Mom?
7: I'm ready. (laughs) Meanwhile, Tom's backstage. He's nervous too. He's one of 250 singers, and he wants to make sure his mom and sister get a good view of him up there under the lights. Do you think they can see me? (laughs) It's showtime. The singers file on stage and perform a set that ranges from the serious to the silly. There are close to a thousand people in the audience. The mayor of Knoxville is here. Everyone seems to be having a great time. Once the curtain goes down, Tom rushes to the lobby to find his family. What did you think, family?
6: Oh, (laughs) Oh, I thought it was (laughs) so wonderful.
7: You have to get the new album.
0: Thank (laughs)
3: you. I told Amy, I need a new needle for my little
0: record player.
7: It's taken years for Joyce and Tom to get to this point. Tom says his mother's trip to see him sing with the chorus gave her some peace with the choices he's made to live his life in the most authentic way he can. But like any mother, Joyce is worried about her child's safety, especially since the chorus was headed to North Carolina, where there's an ongoing battle around whether trans people are legally allowed to use the bathroom that matches their gender identity. Not that Tom would be mistaken for a woman in the men's restroom... He's bald and sings low bass in the choir.
8: La, 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 la. I wanna see you. Just wanna see you. I wanna
7: see you. I wanna see you be brave. Sure Tom is just happy his mom got to see him sing, and relieved that she likes her new crocheted scarf. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. <laughs> got photos of
2: Tom's reunion with his mom, Joyce, and a video of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus performing on their tour of the South. Check it out at californiareport.org. And now a story about a lost work of art. You may not have heard of Viktor Arnatov, but he was a Russian artist who painted murals around San Francisco in the 1930s. He started off as an assistant to Diego Rivera, and became known for his work on San Francisco's Coit Tower. He also painted three murals inside California post offices, including one in the Bay Area city of Richmond. But as Eli Wirtschafter tells us, that mural disappeared for almost 40 years, until an amateur sleuth tracked it down.
0: Melinda McCrary is the director of the Richmond Museum of History one of just two part-time staff who keep the place running.
8: I do everything. I take out the trash. I am the main fundraiser. I do all the programming.
0: Now, when McCrary started this job a few years ago, she heard about a mural that Arnatoff painted for the nearby Richmond Post Office back in 1941.
8: The mural is really a snapshot of pre-World War II Richmond.
0: It shows a quiet town on its way to becoming an industrial city. You can see rolling hills, a postman hand-delivering a letter, townspeople buying fruit, and then you also see smokestacks and refineries. The painting decorated the post office until the 1970s. That's when the building was remodeled and the canvas mural was pulled off the wall and stuck in a box somewhere.
8: It was just forgotten. It just got lost in the shuffle.
0: Arnatov was a protege of Diego Rivera and a secret member of the Communist Party. So he dropped some political hints into his painting. It shows union dock workers hanging out at the port of Richmond, including an African-American man. The union was integrated, but at the time, Richmond was just 1% black. Melinda McCrary was intrigued by all this history, and she decided she had to find the mural.
8: I want to put the Richmond Museum on the map.
0: McCrary had a hunch that the mural was somewhere inside the post office building, but the workers there wouldn't let her in until she enlisted the help of a friendly janitor. One day after the post office closed, he let her into the basement.
8: Totally sneaky. Yeah, it was not supposed to be down there.
0: The janitor opened a set of double doors.
8: And there was, a you know, exposed pipes, and um, it was totally dark and
0: dusty. And in the corner of an otherwise empty room, she saw a tall wooden crate. So it was
8: just standing upright, vertical, in the middle of this tiny room in the basement where it seemed like it had sat forever, literally.
0: McCrary used the flashlight on her phone to read a handwritten label on the box.
8: You know, I shine the light, and I just, I knew in my bones.
0: This was it. The label said, Arnatoff.
8: It was amazing. I will never have this experience again in my life.
0: You can see a full-size reproduction of the mural at San Francisco State University through mid-December. McCrary is raising money to restore the original canvas, which is wrinkled and still has bits of lead-based adhesive stuck to it. For now, it's wrapped up in plastic at the Richmond Museum of History. In a basement. For the California Report, I'm Eli Warchafter.
2: And now it's time for another installment in our new series about California towns with bizarre and surprising names. A place called... What? What?
8: What? Como? What? Getting directions to Rough and Ready.
2: For last week's A Place Called What, we took you to Zizix, that's spelled Z-Z-Y-Z-X, near Death Valley. And we asked you for your ideas for weird place names. Scott Schlachter of San Jose sent us a note asking how the town called Rough and Ready, near Grass Valley in Nevada County, got its name. So we called up Jaina Ashcraft, who lives in Rough and Ready. She says her small gold mining town has a big history. In 1850, it seceded from the nation and temporarily became its own republic, until the townspeople realized they couldn't buy booze in neighboring counties if they were considered foreigners. And the town's name? Well, that came from a military captain who arrived looking for gold and wanted to pay tribute to the 12th president of the United States, Zachary Taylor. Here's what Jana told us.
3: The town of Rough and Ready got its name from Captain A.A. Townsend. He served under Zachary Taylor, who was known as Old Rough and Ready. When I tell people I come from Rough and Ready, they go, are you kidding me? When I've ordered stuff from different companies, they call back to double-check that is this in fact rough and ready and we happen to live on to Helen back lane and I think that kind of makes people shocked, or they laugh, it's usually a good laugh. When we first got here I was very charmed by um, a group called the fruit jar pickers who would just get together on the front porch of the market and play homemade instruments it's that kind of community we're we're very involved with our little town we're very proud of our history I think if you're just driving down the road you're gonna blink and miss it there's so much more there don't pass history by Bianca Taylor produced
2: that interview with Jana Ashcraft, who lives in Rough and Ready. Head to californiareport.org to check out photos of the town. And while you're there, send us a comment with your idea for another California place with an unusual name you'd like to hear about. Or write us an email at calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report Magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. We're your weekly road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make California unique. You can listen to us wherever you are if you subscribe to our podcast. And let us know what you think about our show on Facebook or send us an email, calreport at kqed.org. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Victoria Maulion is our senior editor. David Marks is our online producer. And our intern is Bianca Taylor. The California Report's editorial team includes Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine.
1: Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com CloudReady. cloud-ready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org.
8: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.